New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mendrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mendrinos. Hello, everybody. Jim Mendrinos. Welcome to the Comedy Legacy Series. Uh, we are going to have a great show for you today. One of the more fun things, we have an interview today with Al Martin, um, comedian, club owner, and author. Um, and we're going to talk about his experiences. And for the first time on our show, we're going to get the club owner side of, of the comedy experience. So it's going to be informative. It's going to be entertaining. And without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Al Martin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Comedy Legacy Podcast. This is going to be a fun one. I've, uh, I know this next gentleman well over 20 years, well over 20 years, um, and we've performed together. I've performed at his club, um, read his book that is recently out. We'll get talking about that for a couple of seconds. Al Martin, Al, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jim. I think it's way over 20 years. I think it's closer to the to the. <laughs> we don't want to admit it, but closer to the 30-year mark, young well, man. <laughs> you know, there have been a few people that I've said I've known for 30 years, and they're, they're like, chill with the 30 years thing. There's a whole lot of us that don't want to admit how long we've been around. Oh, yeah. And you were just a kid. <laughs> oh, yeah. I started at, uh, at the lovely age of 19. But you wow. were not all that old when you started either. Yeah, I was about 30. 30 years old. Yeah. Uh, 29, 30, around there. Yep. Uh, we're going to get into into that in just a few seconds, but I want to I want to start by talking about the history because we're recording and and as we're recording, we're in the middle of quarantine because we don't know when this is going to air, um, but we are in the middle of quarantine while we're uh, recording this, and you are in the middle of trying to get your club open. Yes. Pandemic. Um, yes. Here's one of the things I want to talk about because comics, um, a, as a collective. We love to bitch about club owners. We do. We love to, this one doesn't like me. This one doesn't run a club right. This one doesn't do this. Right. Um, you know, can you talk for a second about the sheer amount of work it's taking you, the amount of research that you have to do to find out what you need to do to comply, all the things that are entailed just to reopen a business that's already been running? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, it's funny, Jim. I always tell uh, young comedians or people that teach comedy classes, if you really want to do your students a service, make sure at some point that a comic, a young comic starting out, produces their own show and runs their own show just so they see the other side of the coin, what it's like to book comedians, what it's like when a comedian at the last minute can't show up or, you know, they run over the light. So that should be a very important uh, thing for any comedian. But getting back to your specific question, it's taking a lot. I have to stay up to date on any and all requirements that uh, the government is looking for in terms of keeping customers safe. I kind of have to think, like, if I was walking into my venue, what it is that I would like to see, you know, um, things like uh, we're, we're going to be scheduling our shows very differently so that there's immediate walk-in to the showroom and that there's not a wait for a show to um, uh, end uh, to be able to go into the showroom. And that's going to limit people meandering around in the lobby. 
and uh, hanging out in front of the club as best as possible. Because here's one of the problems. There's going to be someone out there, a nosy neighbor or somebody, who's going to wait to take that gotcha picture of someone outside your club who maybe is smoking a cigarette for a moment, uh, combined with someone who's exiting and two customers that are trying to go in. Now you got five people, and that becomes a throng in a New York Times headline, <laughs> you know? Uh, clubs, uh, clubs not adhering to social distancing, you know? So it's going to take stuff like that. Uh, we've already started the process of putting in uh, hand sanitizing stations in the club, plexiglass in certain seating areas, um, uh, partitions in the bar area, signage, uh, plexiglassing our box office, uh, UV um, lighting in certain spots, uh, air filtration systems in other parts of the club. So, and then actually right before we open, we're going to go for a deep clean, deep sanitizing process. So the problem is nobody's indicated yet when we're reopening. So, you know, some of this I've, I've already, you know, here's the, the catch you're in. If you wait till when the city announces your opening, you're going to be competing with everybody else to get the equipment that you need to open. So really, I've just tried to get everything from now, store it in the place, uh, get everything up and ready, and, and be ready to open when the city says to open. But, you know, there are other issues with that. You know, can you get all your staff back? You're competing with, you're competing with unemployment, quite honestly, you know. People are getting substantial, some, some people are getting substantial amounts of money to be on unemployment and they don't want to come back to work. You know, uh, they say, oh, well, I'm, I'm making um, $900 a week, uh, $800 a week on unemployment. Why do I want to come back to work? And I can't blame them, you know? Yeah. So <clears throat> I don't think comics appreciate the amount of money, time, and effort it takes to book a, to, to put together a club, you know, you've built um, three from scratch. Um, and the fourth one, your original spot uh, was converted from the old living room, which we will talk about in a second at length, because uh, I have a very fond memory of something nice you did for me at the old living room uh, area that I wanted to run by you. But, sure. um, you know, all of this to say, when comics walk in, they just expect club owners to want to automatically use them because they're funny. And I know that you're also a comic, so you understand that ego of, you know, why are you booking John when I'm just as funny as John? You should be booking me. But right. there's also, from a club owner position, the impact on your audience, how you fit in with the other comics, uh, all the chess pieces that are there. Can you right. talk a, a little bit about that? Because I know, I know you've had friends that you could not book in some of your venues on occasion. Uh, I right. Remember, I, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I remember a clean show that you were booking. I believe it was at a Jewish organization and right. you, you put me on the show and you couldn't put one of your friends on the show because he couldn't work clean enough. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. And you know, it is an old saying in horse racing, horses for courses, you know, certain horses are better at certain tracks and certain comics obviously are going to be better in front of certain audiences and to combine the, the sort of two things we're talking about, like what are the things that can get uh, 
comedy club owners and managers uh, upset um, and, and, and the theme of, of booking a, a good show the right way. I'll give you a classic example. One, one, one night I had a show booked with Todd Barry, uh, the first spot after the MC, and the second spot after the MC was Keith Robinson. Uh, so, or it was second and third, something like that. But it was definitely Todd Barry in front of Keith Robinson. Keith Robinson walks into the room. Al, I'm in a hurry. I'm, 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 I'm running late for the whole night. I got, I got to set somewhere else. You, you do me a favor. You got to put me up right away or I can't do the spot. So, you know, I said to Todd, Todd, could, I, and I knew this was going to be a disaster, but I said, Todd, would you mind? And to, to his credit, he was great. He said, I, it's all right. It's fine by me. I'm not in a hurry. So Keith Robinson goes up. He crushes, as he always does, does a great job. But the problem is Todd Barry is a very low-key act. <laughs> and Keith Robinson comes up, you know, like it's machine gun fire, you know. So now Todd has got to take 10 minutes to dig out of the, the hole that, you know, Keith created with the audience. And what pissed me off more than anything was Keith comes off stage and starts bullshitting at the bar with a girl for 20 minutes. And I walked over to him and I said, I thought you were in a hurry to go somewhere. He goes, I'll talk to you later. Huh? And he, he winds up talking to the girl for another 45 minutes. So he screws up my entire show because he's in a hurry, but he never left to go anywhere. Yeah, because comics will chase women. Um, yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. And listen, I get that part of it. But, you know, if you want to know the kind of things that a comic can do to set you off, that's one of them. Yeah. Let's let's talk about that because you've um, you've always taken care in booking the shows, um, and, and in particular, what act follows which act, you right. know. Um, but you also have, uh, and this is something I personally love that your club does that other clubs don't. You give the check spot to a new comic, you know, and and spare your veteran headliners the 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 need to live through them. What was your Correct. thought process on doing that? Well, I think the check spot, unless I have a, an unusually strong comic that has, you know, crowd ex expertise. And let's face it, there are guys that are around 30 years or gals that are incredible comics, but they just don't work an audience that well. So if, you're, if your closing act is the kind that, you know, prefers just to be a straight monologist and they don't want to be sitting there working a room while they're getting checks. I've always felt it's something that someone has earned. In other words, when you're working my room, you've, and you're, you're one of the regular spots on the show, you've earned that respect to not have to do, if at all possible, checks or as few checks as possible. I mean, sometimes you might get a check or two if a customer wants to leave early. Yeah. And, also, it allows the young comic to develop and learn that not everything is perfect. You know, I see some people, they produce shows at my club, and I get it. It's their show, and they want to shine as best as possible. But every time they do a show, they're third or fourth in the lineup. Well, you don't learn a lot that way if you're third or fourth. You might have to learn when you're in the check spot or maybe the first spot after the MC. So, because you... It's like, remember the classic movie uh, with, uh, about Primo, the boxer, uh, The Harder They Fall with Humphrey Bogart mm -hmm. in the late 50s? 
It was about a boxer they brought in from Argentina, and they fixed his first, like, 20 fights. And then they finally put him in against a real boxer, and the guy got his brains beat in. It's the same thing with comedy. If you, if you constantly give yourself cushiony spots on shows and cushiony spots in the lineup, you're never going to really learn anything, and one day you're going to get hammered. Yeah. So I want to um, I want to cut back. I want to talk about uh, coming up in the trenches because you started uh, your clubs and and you know if you read Al's book, you'll know this. But uh, you started your clubs more for stage time than you started it because you wanted to own a club. I mean, right. it, it eventually you know it morphed into a nice living for you. But in the beginning, it literally you talked about Eagle Tavern and you talked about the old. Uh, original location of New York Comedy Club. You just wanted to make sure that you had spots, and, and you basically were singing for your supper. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, back in those days, as you well know, Jim, there was the comic strip, the improv. Uh, Caroline's in the late 80s, I think, came along in the late 80s, maybe stand-up New York. But for many, many years, it was the strip, uh, comic strip, uh, improv yeah. Improv and catch, and many times you were a, a strip comic or a catch comic or an improv comic. Sometimes you went back and forth, but a lot of times you were home based in one of those places. So there weren't a lot of opportunities. There were no new talent shows. There was no real barking going on. So a lot of the uh, it, no very few of any internships. I mean, I remember Dave Mattel working the coat check room over at the um, improv, but. Uh, you know, there were very few opportunities for young comedians other than, you know, 1230 in the morning on Friday and Saturday, you know, dodging darts at your old triple in, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's <laughs> so, so you came around and you started it. And when you started stand up, it was a much different climate than it is now. Oh, um, yeah, there, there, it was a, a little bit more competitive than I think it is right now. Um, and when we started, it was definitely you hunted for stage time. Hunted, yeah. I remember working Dave LaBarker's room in Forest Hills, Queens. <laughs> you know, I, you, you had to really move around outside of Manhattan. Uh, I did Shooting Stars Comedy Club in Scarsdale, Pips in Brooklyn, you know, uh, yeah. just to get five minutes sometimes. And I, sometimes I didn't have a car, so I'm on the Metro North to some local... And at one time, I, I did shooting stars on a Sunday and didn't realize there was no bus back to the Metro North, you know? So <laughs> it wound up costing me like $40 to do a five-minute open mic the last spot, you know? Yeah. But so you never know, because from doing that, I met this guy named Skip Palmer, who wound up being the late-night MC at Dangerfields on Sundays. And then eventually, he would invite me to do a spot at Dangerfields on Sunday at like one fifteen in the morning when there was like three people left, but it was a spot. Yeah. And, and that's what I think most comics don't realize when you're starting out, how precious stage time is. So absolutely. Um, I love the story in your book where you talked about um, you, you had a show booked and at the last minute they took a catering uh, place. And that's how you actually found uh, the, the original location. Uh, That's a New good story, County. yeah. So, and again, you did that not because you had, you know, you talked about in the book how you had an audience, you know, with spots confirmed, with the with, uh, seats confirmed, 
but more so that you also wanted the stage time. Absolutely. That was provide. So, yeah, you know, I mean, it was all about, you know, really getting myself stage time. And listen, it, like you said, it turned into something where I started making some money at it, which I needed at the time. And so it worked out perfectly. But, you know, that's what I teach comics a lot of times. And, and when I talk with comedians uh, from various classes that are done at Broadway, I say to them, listen, uh, you have to really uh, figure out innovative ways to get stage time. And nowadays there's so many of them, but, you know, some people, you know, one of the things that is a little depressing when I talk to comedians, I know back when I started, I wanted to be a comedian and that was it. I was laser focused on being a comedian. Nowadays you talk to comics. Oh, so what do you do? How often do you get up? Well, I get up for stand up once a week. I do sketch and improv another two days a week. I take an acting class three days a week, you know, uh, one, you know, they're not really focused on any one thing, you know? And, you know, I, I, I've always believed to be a successful stand-up, you have to be laser-focused and getting up there. And you have to live it, breathe it, eat it to be a, a, a good stand-up comic, in my view. Yeah, it, it almost has to be a religion, you know, if you're doing this properly. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk about your early days because you had a lot of success early on in your career. I mean, you, you did uh, Evening at the Improv fairly early in, in your run. And, you know, between, you know, gigs that you were headlining fairly early, plus, you know, television sets fairly early. What was your opinion when the 90s came and it tightened up and there wasn't 2000 late night shows to do anymore? I mean, how did that change your perception on, on your process and what you were aiming for as a comic? Well... For me, I never really thought I was going to be the comic that would have that sitcom, but it had a devastating effect on on a lot of people that were that had their careers, you know, aimed at that. Uh, a lot of the clubs where people would get discovered were starting to close. Uh, two of them being Catch and The Improv uh, went down almost maybe a year apart, uh, mm -hmm. six months to a year apart. Um, I'm not sure Dangerfields was ever a place that, you know, people were necessarily getting discovered at. So it really came down to Stand Up New York, uh, where Brett Butler wound up getting found by Carsey Warner. And, um, you know, the Strip was a place where people also were getting seen. So it really, it really was a, um, a, a, a blow to a lot of the comedians' that we're looking for that sitcom, you know, and, and as you well know, every year that someone went off and got a sitcom, they would always take three or four of their friends with them, you know, for writing gigs, whether it was Seinfeld with Carol Leifer, Bob Shaw, and people like that, you know, they would go off to LA and then that would, you know, thin the herd if there were three or four sitcoms that comics got out of New York and they brought three or four comics with them, you know, 12 people would graduate out of New York that year, allowing for spots to open. But what had subsequently happened is different types of programming started to come up where it was a lot cheaper than a sitcom to produce. And a lot of these top comics that every year would go off to L.A. got stuck in New York 
and they started competing more and more for the local spots in the city clubs. And, and it, it became a cluster, for lack of a better word, a clusterfuck, because you want to give opportunities to the newer comics coming up the ranks, but it's like a restaurant. You know of a great restaurant on the corner that you've been going to for years. They serve unbelievable food. Do you try the new restaurant on the block or do you keep going with that restaurant that you've had all those great meals? So that now becomes a very tough choice. Do I go with Jim Mandrinos, who I know could do the job every week, you know, no matter where I put him in, or do I try a Mark Norman coming up the ranks, you know, behind him? And that, that really becomes the challenge and then affects everybody's spots because Every spot I take from, you know, every spot I give to a Mark Norman, I'm taking from a Jim Mandrinos. Yep. Now, you stopped performing for a little bit. Um, you, you always dabbled. You never fully 100% stopped. But right. you, you stopped actively hitting the road, you know. Correct. Um, why? What was it that made you make that decision? Well, two things happened. Uh, my... Early on, if you might remember, I had a partner in, in New York Comedy Club, uh, Eddie Stanley. Mm -hmm. And our, basically our arrangement was I would work the weeknights at the club and Eddie would work the weekends, which would free me up to do road gigs on the weekends. Then uh, Eddie and I had a falling out. Eddie went his own way. And uh, now I had the club full time. And I also had a little child at the time uh uh at the time david uh, who's now dina uh was growing up and getting older and i didn't really want to be very similar to ronnie dangerfield's story he didn't want to be on the road a lot i didn't really want to be on the road a lot when i was raising my kid i, I sort of wanted to be close by and that's when i said you know what i'm gonna stick to manhattan i'm gonna stick to my club i'll i'll sort of get my stage fix at New York Comedy Club and be close by to help raise my, my kid and, and be there um, for her. And which was lucky because when she hit 12, her mom got a, a divorce from her second husband and could not afford a, an, an apartment that would be able to have our kid and her. So it was like that famous scene in The Odd Couple where they knock on the door and she goes, here, he's yours, you know, type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I had to take over full-time parenting at the age of 12. So I definitely couldn't go on the road. So and that, that's really what happened. And then, you know, as the club's success increased, another problem occurred, and that is, you know, New York eventually had two showrooms. And then I opened up the Florida club and then I opened up Broadway and eventually I had three showrooms. There was no way I could go outside of town. I had a folk. I, and I, not only that, I'd find myself going on stage sometimes saying, wait a second, how come that table doesn't have a drink and nobody's taking a food order? You know, I'm like micromanaging the club from the stage and you know, that never leads to anything good. So that's when I decided I, I just got to start going up when I want to go up and, and not, I can't, I can't really be a, a full timer anymore. Now, lately though, you've been coming back a lot more, you know, well, pre COVID. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you know, the thing is I started, uh, 
you know, once it's in your blood, it is very difficult, um, as you well know. And, it's kind of um, like the mafia, blood in, blood out. Yeah, it's like you walk into a room and you see people sometimes that are newer and you you they're getting laughs, but you don't think they're that unbelievable. And you say to yourself, wait a second, I should be on that stage, you know? I could still do it. But having gone on stage the last few years, I've gained a whole new respect for comedians. I mean, I think this job is so much tougher now than when I was doing it uh, because of a couple of different things. One, the, the curse of political correctness has gotten horrible. And I just don't understand, you know, what the heck is coming on. You know, my attitude is this. My comedy club isn't going to be a safe space for people. It's going to be a safe space for comedians. And when that stops, I'm out of the business. Because if you come into a comedy club, you should expect anything goes. And if you can't, don't go. And it's as simple as that. That's my view of it. I'm not going to sit here and tailor make a show for 300 different constituencies, you know, uh, people that are missing a left leg, people that are missing a right leg, people that are missing, you know, uh, people that have pimples on their face, you know, I mean, this is it. This is the comedy club. This is where we joke about things. We don't take things 100% seriously in life. And if you're not able to have that experience, don't come out. And I think that's one, that's going to be one big one that's going to destroy us down the road, political correctness. And then the second I think that is really harmful, and I think it's important that we make those announcements and try to police the room as best as possible, is smart devices. You know, um, I can't tell you how many times I watch a show and I see someone, if the comic happens to have an opening bit that doesn't quite grab people right away, but it's setting up to something down the road, uh, People have no attention spans anymore. They get on their phone. They start checking the stock futures for tomorrow. They're checking their, you know, their text messages, the weather report for the week. Oh, in two weeks, I'm going to the Bahamas. Let's see what's going on down there. You know, I mean, it, it, it's just endless what they could do with their phones nowadays. And before you know it, they're not paying um, a, a, attention, you know, um, they're not paying attention. Uh, you might have lost me for a second, but they're not, second. Paying, they're not paying attention to what's going on on stage. I do want to talk to you about the political correctness, because you are in one of the most unique positions, and I often point it out to you. You've never wavered in all the years I know you that a comic should be free to say whatever they want to say on your stage. You know, and... Let's be really honest. We started in the, you know, I started in the 80s. I, I believe you came around in the late 80s. Uh, there's an awful lot uh, of really homophobic material that was bandied about. And you never once censored a comic on your stage, even though I know that you have strong opinions about that in your personal life. How, how is it that you're able to make that separation? And, and, and do you think there is a line of responsibility? You know, that's a tough question. Thank, yeah. you. Thank you for hitting me with that. But uh, you opened it up. I'm sorry, I had to. You know what? I have a gay child. I had a gay child. Now she's transgendered, right? And she's uh, 
a woman that likes men, so she might be straight right now. Yeah. But <laughs> um, the thing is, is that, and she probably hates when I say that, but um, the thing is, if I'm, going to, if I'm going to tell other people that you can't be sensitive in a comedy club, you've got to suck it up, and that's it. It's a comedy club, and it's a free and open exchange of, of jokes, and some you're going to like and some you're going to not like. I can't suddenly change that and say, oh, I don't like the gay joke, so you can't do the gay joke, because then I'd be really sort of a hypocrite. So if either I run with a certain viewpoint on political correctness or I don't, and I really just think it's a cancer in our business to start placating every single type of potential uh, thing that someone's going to be unhappy with. I'll give you a perfect example. There was a, a, a comic who crushed on my stage, and I was watching the show, and they absolutely did an unbelievable job. Now, that being said, a, a customer came out. Now, that customer, 99% of the audience was laughing at this particular comic. But at the end of the show, that customer came out and said to me, you know, I liked everyone on the show, but I don't like that one comic, and I don't think you should book that comic. And I explained to them that I understand your position, but I was watching the audience tonight. They were 99% of them were laughing at that comic. You didn't like that comic. Yeah, but I love this so-and-so comic on the show. I said, I'll tell you something funny. Somebody came up to me a minute ago and didn't like the comic that you like. So basically, where does it all end? Someone doesn't like, you know, out of 200 people in a room, you don't like one comic. And then another person doesn't like another out of 200 people in a room. But, you know, you're not going to make 200 people happy in a room. Somebody's going to be unhappy. I mean, and that's just the way it is. Yeah. And I, it's awesome that you, you can actually make that difference. Because some people can. Some people just, you know, their bandwagon is different. You know, and it's awesome that you're giving comics that, that freedom of space. Because I also know you as a dad, you know, if somebody said the wrong thing to Dina, you they'd be in a hospital. I also know you personally. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> Personally, you, yes. Yes. You, so, and I, I've seen you, you know, defend Dita on, on, on a few occasions. So it's great that, you know, you stand by that and, and you go on both sides of it. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about that because, um, man, over the years with Dina, I've seen her deal with a whole lot of disrespect in the clubs when people don't quite realize that she's your daughter, you know, when they're first coming in. Right. And, you know, that it's not just that she's your daughter, she's staff. She's an employee of your club as well. And I know that one of your biggest pet peeves are when comics disrespect the staff. So yes. I, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about that because every every club owner, whether or not a comic wants to believe it, has their line of this will get you never booked here again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, you know, and, and the unfunny thing is the only thing that's in any comics mind, but there's about 30,000 of them, you know, drinking too much right. in the club, you know, disrespected staff. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, about the entitlement that sometimes comics will feel walking into a club? Well, yeah, no, no problem. For instance, years ago, um, I think I, I like to give newer comics a, a, a more opportunities than most comedy clubs will do in terms of 
promoting some people up into the regular lineups. And for a while, there was a group of pro comedians that were giving me a hard time because I would give a guest spot or two to an intern coming up the ranks. And they actually accused me of ripping off the public by doing this. And, you know, and, and it's funny because I'm ripping off people for putting, for giving young comedians a break. But then if, if we have bringer shows, we're also ripping off, you know, so like, it's, it's like you win, you can't win either way, you know? Uh, so I've decided to do whatever I feel I need to do to make my business succeed and balance that with giving people an opportunity. And at the end of the day, that's really what I aim for, you know? I mean, there are people that are going to be unhappy with some decisions I make. Um, if you want to know what pisses me off as a club owner, don't come into my club and ask in your intro that you're working another club down the block next week. You know, I mean, that's just common sense. Don't come in five minutes to showtime and uh, check in with the MC and then disappear somewhere else in, in the in the place or go to the bathroom for 15 minutes and we're looking for you. Don't make me every time you're booked have to look outside down 53rd Street to see if you're running down the block. I've seen some comics we book that are like, it's it's spot time, and then meandering down the block, taking their time like there's nothing going on. I mean, like, you know, these are the things that I get to the point and I say, hey, do I book one guy who's always here on time, never gives me a hard time, never aggravates me? Or the funnier guy who is just a flake and a pain in the ass, drama all around them every time. I'd rather go for someone a little less funny, but is steady and reliable and not a drama queen and humble than someone that's just going to be high maintenance. So don't block the entranceway when the waitstaff is coming through with drinks. That's a, that's a good one. Don't take the microphone and smash it on your head 50 times or smash it on the wall because a microphone could be 100 to $200, you know? So I see mm -hmm. comics take a, a, a chair and they smash it on the stage. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, you know, don't go over. Here's a tip, an Al Martin golden rule, okay? Always make friends with the wait staff and the bar staff at a comedy club. They, especially on the road, they could be your biggest ally. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a waitress or a waiter tell the owner of the club how funny an act was. Because let's face it, the owner can't be in the room all the time. So it's the wait staff that's going to tell a manager or an owner, boy, that, that comic crushed. So just being nice to the wait staff could go so far in helping your career. But a lot of times, some comedians walk in like the waitstaff is crap. You know, they don't, they're not nice to them. Uh, or, or how about this? Don't do this, comedians. Don't walk in when they're getting out the first round of drinks and go, can I have a Diet Coke? You know, I mean, like they're busy getting out the first round of drinks. Wait till you see them have a moment where they're taking it easy. Use your brains. I want to talk a little bit about relationships because that's sure. whether or not we believe it. This is what this industry is built on. You know, the relationships we have. Um, you and I uh, 
met because you left a voicemail on my machine. I don't know if you remember this. I had been hosting the Monday nights at Comic Strip, uh, the new talent night. That was my job for many a year. And when comics would say, when I'd had to give comics unfortunate news that they couldn't go there, they'd say, well, where can I find stage time? And I would give them a list of clubs and yours was one of them I gave the list to, uh, having never been there myself. I knew it existed, but I was already up at the, at the comic strip. And, and so right. I, hadn't, I hadn't yet ventured there. Um, and you were kind enough to leave a voicemail for me saying, hey, we've never met, but you sent a couple of people my way. I want to thank you for that. Uh, also, I want to invite you to the club if you ever want to do a spot. Um, and it was respectful. It was nice. It, we had it met. It was out of the blue. And I think I went there two nights later. Um, and it was uh, on 48th Street, uh, incarnation of the New York Comedy Club. And it's where, for historical purposes that people don't know, uh, a story uh, club in New York City history called The Living Room was. Um, and when I walked in... And I looked at it and I went, you know, this is the living room. You turned to me and said, you know, you're the only other person that knows that. I, I mean, I think it was you and me that knew that at that time. Yeah. And one other person years later, which I discussed in the book, um, it's very funny. When Carson was doing the last week of shows and he was inviting his favorite guests on the show, mm -hmm. Rodney Dangerfield came into the room and he said, was this the old living room? And I go, yeah, it was. And then he told me such a great story. He told me when the living room was in its heyday, he was one of the house comedians at the living room. And there was a young guy in the band, the house band, and his name was Tony Bavacqua. And he met Tony Bavacqua at the old living room, and they wound up partnering a few years later and opening up Dangerfields on 61st Street which was built almost just exactly. like the living room with yep. the red, you know, the red, what I call the red whorehouse curtains, uh, the, uh, the paneling, the sconces, the leather banquette tables, all that stuff. But uh, this is the story that, that, you know, I, I wanted to get on the show because this was one of the nicest things somebody had ever done. When I came in and we talked and we had a great time at the bar um, I had mentioned that, you know, where you had the stage was different than where the old photos were. When I would see the photos of Sinatra and stuff, I said, oh, the stage was back there. And we talked about this for a few minutes. And apparently when you had improv groups and larger performances, you would use that backstage as the stage. Right. Uh, I come in for my first spot on a Tuesday night the next week. And you told the MC to set up the backstage so that I could be on the same stage as Sinatra. And I never forgot that. And it's little things like that. And, and you talk in your book a lot about relationships and little moments that you had with comics that kind of fuel your relationship with them. You know, moments with Janice. Absolutely. Moment, uh, moments that you had with Chris or with Mike King or with some of the other ones. Um, let's talk about those relationships because you have been fiercely loyal to your group of comics for forever since the dawn of time so yeah. you know what is it that that brings you coming back to the same people you know uh when you own a, a comedy club or comedy clubs when you book a room you really start to lose track and it could be my own insecurity i have no idea but you really don't know who you're 
really good friends are because everybody wants to be your friend, you know? Yeah. Oh, he books a room. Oh, I'll be his friend, <laughs> you know? Um, the way I always have felt that I know who my friends really were were the people in comedy that were my friends before I even had a club, you know? And, and those are guys like Chris Murphy, Steve Marshall. Let me tell you a funny story about Chris Murphy. I might talk about him in the book. I'm pretty sure I do. But he was the manager at the old improv. He had a couple of shifts managing that club uh, under Silver Friedman when she owned it. And he used to stop by as a comic. We had open mic together, and I would put him up. And he started bringing comics over. And he said to me one day, he goes, Al, you know, you're pretty funny. Uh, the next time Silver has her auditions where people wait outside for three hours to get three minutes in front of her, you don't have to worry about that. And you don't have to worry about standing on the line. I'm going to uh, get you an automatic uh, callback. And that was such a nice thing he did for me because I had, you know, no real power at the time to do anything for him. So I knew he was doing it at a genuine regard for liking me. You know, Dave LaBarca was another guy. He had a room out at, I think on Austin Street in Forest yep. Hills. Danielle's, that was the name of the room. And he would book me in there before I ever had anything to offer anybody. So those are the guys I'll always remember, you know. And, and Gladys would book me for her Cold Waters room on 2nd Avenue before I had anything to offer her or anybody, you know. And she still doesn't take me up on anything. She she likes walking around the corner to the comic strip, and that's it. That's her her that's her baby. Yeah, well, it's like a three minute walk for her, so she's happy. Yeah, you she's know, happy. Exactly. you get to be a certain age, you don't want to travel anymore. You know, I, I think and I, I see those to pay her up. Uber round trip, and she won't come. Ah, oh, well, she she needs to come because Broadway's gorgeous. You know, um, so I do want to talk a little bit about. Broadway, because when you opened up the Broadway Comedy Club, that was a benchmark. That was, you know, you moved into a bigger space. You moved into more prestigious location, um, and, and you did it right. I mean, you you built it out. And I remember being there on. Uh, I hosted your opening night, if you remember. That's right. Yeah, that and was quite uh, a quite a show too, right? Oh yeah, I mean, Klein was on the show. I mean, we had we had everyone. It was the improv at that moment. Uh, when you when you first opened it, because I I know you uh, did a licensing thing with the uh, with Silver for a little bit, but yep. I want to talk about what was the impetus because you were really comfortable. You had a spot, and granted, as you said in the book, your neighbors on twenty twenty fourth Street were horrendous, but horrendous, horrendous. Yeah, but I've never you, been blessed with good neighbors, really. <laughs> is it any better on uh, in Broadway? Uh, you know, for the most part, most of the people now have gotten used to us. We're there almost 20 years now. Uh, yeah. There is one person that really is a pain in the neck, and he just never lets up, you know. And finally, I said to him, like, you know, like, Mark, we're like, what's the deal, buddy? We're here 18 years. Are we that evil? We're, you know, we're not rap concerts or, or hard rock, like, like. What, what's your problem already? You know, we're here already. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say some of the people on the block kind of like us open here because it's not pitch black at night and, and they feel safer, you know? He goes, oh, yeah, but you're taking up the sidewalk. 
I go, so say excuse me. Like when I go to a Broadway show, you know how crowded it is on, on any side street of Manhattan? Yeah. I say excuse me, and that's it. That's part of living in New York. Yeah. But uh, it, I want to talk about Broadway because it felt like that was a, a not a step up in terms of, of what you were doing, but it felt like the industry took a new look at you. It felt like the whole industry kind of looked at you like you were much more legitimate and for real. Yeah. Forgetting so. those years where you were sending people to Ross Mark or evening at the improv, forgetting those years where, right. where you were giving, you know, uh, Montreal comedy. We, we yeah. were hosting the Montreal comedy festival audition or and 17 shows worth the stage time every week that was produced by New York comedy club. Not, not even counting the bringers, right. you know, uh, they seem to forget all about that. And like, Oh, now Al's real. Did, did yeah. you sense that shift in perception? Yeah, I did. I always remember a funny story of that opening night. Roger came over to me, our mutual friend, Roger Paul, and he said to me, Al, are you worried at all? I go, why? He goes, well, Jamie's opening up eight blocks away. He's opening the Laugh Factory. I go, really? Well, does he know anything about comedy in New York City? Because it's a little bit of a different bird than L.A. And sure enough, you know, he was gone, like, in the middle of the night. He left New York to go back to L.A., but Given, uh, yeah, given his partners, I don't think that was a bad move. Yeah, yeah. Considering the circumstances that he had, a, like a mob hit on him or something, you know, yeah. he, he, he kind of did the right thing in the middle of the night. But um, to answer your question, of course it did. You know, because not only was Broadway uh, uh, almost a two hundred seat room, but it also had a second showroom and eventually a third showroom. And I think a big part of that also was we brought with us someone that had a great deal of respect in the business from her time over at um, Jimmy's Comedy Alley to working uh, for agents and her close relationship with, um, with Rick Messina. And that was Linda Cork. You know, Linda was uh, the, ultimate, the ultimate professional and insider in the business. And she was the general, one of the first general managers of Broadway. So she brought a lot of that with her and a lot of, you know, I remember her wake, uh, unfortunately she passed away and the comics that were there were incredible. It was uh, yeah. David Tell, Judah Friedlander, Mike Vecchione. Uh, she was the first to discover Mike DiStefano before anybody else. I mean, she had, she had such an incredible eye for talent. Uh, it was uncanny. I mean, she would look at someone right away and knew they had it, you know, yeah. and, and that's what I always respected about her. She was also very sweet. And I, uh, as a kid, I used to play her dad's club, Jimmy's Comedy Alley uh, in Bayside all the time. Uh, yeah. And Jimmy and I would drink heavily together because that's what Jimmy did. You yeah. Know, so. Unfortunately, when, when he passed away, it, it devastated her. And yeah. she, she was just never the same after that. And she just spiraled, and she had a heart condition, and it was it was a it was very sad to watch her once her dad passed away. Yeah, um, I do want to talk about this because you, um, she was one of your general managers. Gina was one of your general managers. Dina, now one of your general managers. You had female general managers more than most clubs have. You know, you've given opportunity to a lot of young comics, but you also you know, 
given a lot of opportunity to gay comics, straight comics, black comics, white comics, you know, women in power positions in your club. Um, is diversity something that you look for or just something that happens because you hire the best people you can? I think it's the latter. I mean, I think it's B. The answer is definitely B. Uh, I don't go out of my way to hit a quota. Uh, I think it's disrespectful because once I do hire you, do you look in the mirror and say, well, I was really talented and funny or he had to make a number. And I think when you're getting that kind of booking from me, you're going to know that you earned it on your talent, not because of the color of your skin or, or your gender or anything else, you know? Um, and I'll, basically the way I've always booked the room and in recent years, I've turned it over more to, to Rich Brooks with the instruction that you book the best comics that leave the avails for that day, period. Whoever that funniest is. Now, there might be a little difference between me and him as to who he thinks those funniest people are and what he looks for, but there are times that if there were three, if the three funniest people are three females or three black comedians, uh, then that's the way I go. If it's, you know, if, because at the end of the day, I have to entertain 180 people in New York City in a, in a comedy club. You know, you, that's going to be a tough audience. They, they're going to want funny. And they, they've worked the whole week. And, you know, they want to see a funny show. And, uh, you know, that's what I owe them. Except the Friday Night Late Show. <laughs> yeah. No matter yeah. how funny you book it, it's a miserable audience. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it always has been traditionally, you know. Um, we worked one of the worst Friday Night Late Shows ever together. I don't know if you remember that up at Shooting Stars when we, we did a... Oh, yes, I do. But was that when Shooting Stars was no longer at the club? Was it Was it at the club? Or no, was, it was when, when they, they moved, moved the location. Hotel. Yeah. What? When they moved to the hotel. And oh, yeah. We, okay, yeah. yeah and, 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 and they tried to do a Friday Late Show and I just remember you and I sitting in the back going, someone's going to die tonight. <laughs> yeah, and it was me. You you pulled it off. I just died. Died badly. <laughs> I, ha I have a 10-year head start on you on stage. So, you know, a little more chops at that moment. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I do want to talk, you know, a little bit about your process. Man, because... we did have a lot of history together through the years. Huh? Oh, man. I, I think I'm also one of the only people that's worked every one of your rooms. I did your Florida room. I did the Rockville Center room. I did the one that you booked up in Nyack. You know, I, I've done every incarnation of the clubs in your city. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you've been very kind to me over the years. Thank you, man. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. So I, I do want to talk about your process because, you know, we've talked a lot about the club owner perspective. And thank you because you're the first guest I could bring in to, to talk about this for comics. And comics need to learn this. But I also want to talk, you know, comic-wise, you you did an awful lot of writing when you first started. And then I remember you got Evening at the Improv. And you were a little worried about material <clears throat> leading up to it. And you really worked your ass off to make sure that set was what you wanted it to be. Can we talk about the process of you prepping for a television set, what you had to do to make it happen? Sure. Well, <clears throat> first thing I... I always do with anything like that is I get myself the old handy dandy post-its, the little post-its. And I basically 
title my bits, whatever they are, uh, relationship, uh, uh, mom, dad, you know, each one has a title. And I'll know right away from the title what the bit is. I lay all those bits out on a flat surface. And then I just start playing like it's a puzzle. Uh, this bit, you know, and then taking that sort of that rule of three into place where you'll talk about some topic and you'll hit three jokes on it, you know? And then I'll try to set, you know, then I'll, I'll segue from those three jokes about mom and, and then say something like, oh, you think mom is crazy? Well, how about dad? Then I'll go into the three, three bits about dad, you know? And then um, neighborhood friends going up. And, oh, my parents were nuts? You had to see the people I grew up in my neighborhood, you know? And then boom, segue into that. So... It was a matter of laying out all the stuff that I think I wanted to do on the set and then just placing them in some kind of order. And then once I had that order, I started working it at the club. Now, <clears throat> I also want to talk about it because you were not shy when you were prepping for that set and you asked a lot of the veteran comics to watch you. Yet we watched you and you did the set that you wanted to do. You got a lot of opinions, but ultimately you took responsibility and made your own decisions. What right. was it about getting the feedback? What were you looking for when you were asking for that feedback? Well, you know, it's part of it is my own insecurity, uh, you know, and part of it is looking to people that I respected and I thought were funnier and possibly even more experienced than I was. Because, you know, I never really have a, a, an ego about certain things like, especially if I think I can learn from things from people, then by all means, why not? I think, if, I think it's when you have an ego that's too strong and you, you don't listen to people and you do it your own way all the time, you don't learn anything from that, you know? You're just a person on your own island, and I think it's important to be open to other minds. I might not always take the advice at the end, but... You never know what kind of pearl you'll pick up from somebody by trying to listen to them. Now, it I know uh, I know you started comedy yeah, because you did it on a dare. I'm going to hawk the book shamelessly for you. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> but what was it that made you fall in love with doing comedy? Because I know for me, and I, I talk about this a lot when I talk to young comics, when they say, how'd you know you loved it? I said, first time. I was on stage and I felt what laughter feels like when it comes from an audience back up to you. That, that feeling is addictive for me. What was it for you that made you feel? Well, it couldn't have been that my first time on stage because I bombed. <laughs> I bombed so badly. Uh, but I think what it was the first time is it was a very vulnerable time in my life. And I really was going through some bad personal times. I lived in Brooklyn at the time, and it was a changing area where I lived in. The demographics had changed considerably from the people that I grew up with. And now the area had become very heavily Russian, very heavily Asian. And I really didn't have anybody to talk to in the building. And, you know, I wasn't used to culture. It was like, it was like roller derby in the supermarket. You know, you can, you know, hitting the elbow by old ladies trying to go for a banana. You know, it was like people who hadn't seen food before, you know, and, and um, really it was 
a lonely time in life. So when I sat in Pips that afternoon, that evening, I mean, waiting to go up, I met some very interesting characters at the comedian's table. And we started talking, and then they told me about other open mics, and I would run into them at an open mic, and I'd run into a Chris Murphy, a Steve Ahrens, you know, and, and different people like that. And then I wound up, you know, being also, you know, it also exposed me to people that I, people I never kind of met in, in Brooklyn growing up. Like, you don't run into a lot of openly gay guys like Steve Ahrens. So it was really kind of an adventure for me and a, and a journey to meet people that I really hadn't, you know, been exposed to in my life. And, and, and it kind of changed me as a person. And, and I liked the people and, and I started getting a life which I hadn't had for quite a few years since all my friends moved away to the suburbs or they moved away out of New York to California or Florida, wherever they went. I was the last man standing of my friends and uh, I had to make a life for myself and, and, and comedy was the way I was doing it. Now, in reading your book, and, and I waited to interview you until I, I read it and I got it off Amazon where people can order it if they wanted to read it themselves. Um, but in reading it and knowing you for as long as I know you, you kind of came to a more mellow place. You, you kind of, yes. you know, this, this is the most peaceful I've seen you is, is in these pages. So, yeah. you know, it begs the question, are you, have you mellowed out or has the ghostwriter done a really good job? No, I, you know, Jim, I think it's a combination of things, you know, um, when I started in comedy, I was a 30-year-old kid who had something to prove in life. And like a lot of comedians, you know, we were either picked on or we had to develop a very hard shell. And, you know, we were kind of victimized in one way or another. And we become very angry sometimes. And I think I was a very angry person either over relationships that broke up or businesses that failed. Uh, and, you know, I'll give you a perfect example. If I would run into a, a young comedian that looked like they had, like, for instance, I'll give you a funny story, which is not in the book, but I'm sitting there running the open mic. I'm struggling my ass off to try to make this little comedy club work. And if you remember back even in those days, I would work myself the Monday open mic, signing in people. I'd be the bartender, you know, and, and you know, doing the avails that day. And some young comic comes in and he's sitting there telling me, you know, I have such a great life. My wife is so beautiful. I have a business that's successful. My parents are wonderful. I inherited the business from them. And I'm thinking to myself, this freaking prick is getting on my nerves of how happy he is, you know. And he, and he goes to me, you know, any recommendations you have for me for comedy? And he meant it in an innocent way. He really did. And I turned around and said to him, quit. And he goes, why? I go, because you don't have anything to be funny about. You're too freaking happy, you know? And I think when I was a 30-year-old guy, having gone through a divorce, like I said, and some, and some other bad stuff in my life, I was a very angry person. So I think a combination of a lot of therapy through the years success in what I was doing and uh, meeting a great woman who grounded me, um, a new Al Martin started to emerge, you know, someone who was 
happy with myself and happy at my accomplishments and wanting to really start to think of a legacy and how I can help comedians through what I experienced to make their journey a little easier. Now, and that's, that's also what this podcast is about trying to, trying to give comics some tools, you know, take what you need from each of these interviews and, and use it to go forward. Now, when I started, um, it's a little bit different. I started at 19, so I guess I looked more either desperate or adorable. Pick it, pick your word. So I had a lot of the veteran comics reach back and help me out. Um, and that's one of the things that I, I tell comics all the time is that the comics themselves are generally kind. The comics themselves are generally helpful. Um, and we both share a love for a lot of the veterans that came before us. Um, you know, particularly Freddie Roman, who's a mutual friend for both of oh, us. Yeah, and, and for me, also a neighbor. He lives one building over from me. Yeah, yeah. And so I wanted to just talk early in your career when you were starting, who were the veterans that reached back and, and kind of gave you some guidance and help? <laughs> of course, Morty Storm the Third. That's yeah. a super veteran from the from the fifties, I think. Um Believe it or not, when I could get to talk to him, uh, sometimes Otto, Otto and George, you know, Otto was someone that if you can get through some of his anger, you know, there were always pearls of wisdom that he can give you. A road, in terms of road experience, a road warrior, uh, two guys that I'll always remember were helpful to me and gave me work starting out were Jim Florentine, uh, back when he was known as Jam and Jim, yeah. uh, and Bob Levy, uh, who was always very kind to me as well, starting out. Those were two guys that, you know, had rooms to book and booked me. And even Phil Selman, you know, <laughs> Phil Selman was, you know, not necessarily more of a mentor, but he was a guy that would give me work early on. Rick Morgan gave me work early on. Um, so, uh, a guy who really taught me a lot, and he sort of changed tremendously through the years, uh, was Bob Gollum. You know, Bob was a guy who, when he first started in New York, you know, he was from rural Pennsylvania. And a lot of guys would make fun of him. He was, you know, um, sort of a hard-headed, redneck type of guy. But he's gone through a tremendous transformation through the years, and I think it had a lot to do with moving out of New York to L.A., getting married to a wonderful woman uh, named Emily. Uh, and he kind of wound up calming down as he had kids and he became a father and his, you know, politics got a little different. And and now you would never recognize him as the person that you might have known 25 years earlier. So people can change. You know, we... If you if one person can change, then the other person on the other side of the conversation is capable of change. Now that being said, there are some comics I run into that I haven't seen in twenty five years that haven't changed one bit. You know, <laughs> that's very sad. <clears throat> Including their acts, um, which is even sadder. Um, now, uh, just one final thought about the book: What made you want to write it? You know, I I, I know that, you know I know what made me want to read it, but what made you want to write it? A great question. Um, it was something I've wanted to do for years. You know, um, the story started piling up and I said to myself, well, you know, what do you need to write a successful book? You need some stuff 
that people are going to find interesting in your profession, but stuff that people are going to find interesting outside of your profession, which usually involves stories about celebrities or, or famous places uh, that, you know, and having been like in five different occasions in the New York Times for various either deeds or misdeeds that I've done, you know, I, I said, you know what? I've accumulated quite a bit of stories here and now I would love to tell the book, you know, write the book. And I pretty much had the skeleton of the book figured out, the beginning, the end, the, the, the chapters. I never had time to physically write it. You know, I would start to write it and, and you know, uh, it was very similar to how I write jokes, you know, with the post-its and stuff. And I, every time I'd start the process, you know, the reality is many comedy clubs have two partners running a club, you know. Uh, I was one guy operating three clubs. So it's very difficult, if you do the math, to really find any spare time to go write a book. But what did it for me was COVID, you know. COVID closed my rooms, and now I had nothing to do. And I had to start to think about two things. One, the next chapter in life, because at some point I might want to turn my clubs over to my kids to run. And the second thing is that I, I know in, if I did do that, I'd need to help them a little bit, you know, with my experience. Sort of what Don Corleone did with Michael in the later years, except I don't want to I don't want to drop that in the the vineyard, you know, yeah. you know, uh, you know, pesticizing the plants. But um, the thing is that I do need some creativity in my life as well. So hence the book. And now someone's writing a screenplay on the book because uh, they were very fascinated on the read and they liked the story. They liked the underdog story involved and the transgender portion of my kid they want to expand on that so they're writing a screenplay on the book and um you know and then i've discussed with you some other ideas yeah. i have in mind so you know um it's uh i think it's getting ready to you know take another turn for something yeah. else now <clears throat> i do want to talk about this one more thing because uh and you mentioned in your book um, you got voted against being in the Friars Club because of bringer shows, you know, and because your club uh, had bringer shows. So that's an excuse somebody used to uh, to try and bar you. Um, you ultimately got in, but, you know, that was the, the first time you came up to a vote. There's plenty of people that say some not-so-flattering things about you. Um, and what I try and tell comics is whenever they hear, oh, I, I heard this club owner is miserable, did you hear it from a comic that doesn't work the club? Because right. that's pretty much what your reputation is. If you talk to somebody that knows you and that you use and that likes you, you're the greatest guy in the world. And you talk to somebody that can't get into your club, oh, he's the worst human being of all time. You know, what you really got to look out for is someone that you book who bad mouths you. Which, yeah. <laughs> which you've gotten some of those too over the years. You know, yeah. But what I really wanted to talk about was you know, the, the, just like comics hear the reputation of the club owners, do you guys hear reputations of comics? How much of our behavior and what we do in other clubs impacts how you're going to view us when we walk into your club? 
Yeah, I mean, like, uh, yes, the answer is that you do hear from other club owners or bookers outside of New York uh, when you're talking uh, about certain comedians. Um, there's not a whole lot of uh, interaction that I have with other club owners in New York now. Uh, I do. I am fairly close with the owners of New York Comedy Club, so we do stay in contact fairly frequently. Uh, I do have a relationship with Tony over at Dangerfields. We'll talk from time to time. Uh, but in terms of, uh, unless a comic is really pissed off a club owner where they go to the, they decide to go to the mats and contact you about them and warn you about them. There's not a lot of that that goes on anymore. Um, you know, but, uh, you do hear from other comics about stories about someone giving someone a heart. It's the comics ratting each other. Out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I like to make my own decisions on people. Had I listened to other people, I would have never booked Bob Golub. Uh, had I listened to other people, um, I, I, I wouldn't have ever booked Otto, you know, but you know, they'll tell you stories. He's not going to show up and, and, and and I booked them anyway, and sometimes he didn't show up, you know. But I would I would always book him, knowing that that was a possibility, and have someone else in the lineup that can you know pick up the pace. Sometimes I like Otto so much, I would book an extra comic on the show just to have him on the show. And if he didn't show up, then I was happy because I was within budget, you know. Yeah, crazy, so right? Yeah, but again, it's the life that we that we chose to lead. Um, last thing, because you've been incredibly generous with your time. We've been talking for over an hour at this point. Um, as you're gearing up for, you know, comedy, and nobody knows what it's going to look like. And we were on a panel together for the Underground Festival talking about, you know, comedy post-COVID and what you think it's going to look like. What do you think of, of the internet shows that are popping up? Do you think they're going to have a negative impact on comedy moving forward? And do you think they're going to stay around after clubs reopen? I think the second clubs reopen, this these these internet shows are going to go poof. Uh, you know, some people might try to keep going because that was the main way they're getting stage time. But, uh, you know, not listen, there's nothing like being in a, in a room with a packed audience and, and getting that immediate... Uh, um, acceptance that you do when you're on a stage. We're talking about fragile personalities that have been picked on their whole life. They've been kicked in the gut, picked, kicked in the head. Now they're standing on stage and they got a, 150 people, 200 people clapping and cheering for them. You know, that that's what it's, that's why they're there. That's why some of them are doing it for so little money. They, they just love that. They, they love what they do. So, I think the second the clubs are given a green light, whenever century that is, uh, then we will um, uh, see the end of the internet show, in my opinion. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't think it brings anything to the table. There's no laughter. It screws with your timing. Um, so I think it's a Band-Aid for now. It keeps people happy. I don't even see as many of them now. Do you? I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but are there more than ever or... Or just not popping up on my feed. I don't know. I just don't see 
as many internet shows as I did maybe a month ago or two. Maybe, and that might be because clubs are starting to open outside of New York. Yeah, I, I, I don't, but you see more of the New York area comics doing them. You see more of, of this area. And I think you will for a little while too. So I got to ask because you kind of, you kind of opened it up about, you know, wanting to leave a legacy. What's next? What's the next thing you're going to do? We, we get, you got well, projects we, in the works in the movie and, and you know, the, the, uh, the stuff we're talking about doing, but what's next for you in terms of clubs? Well, I don't, you know, being, seeing how exposed I was with this virus and could it come back? Could it not come back? I think in terms of clubs, I'm, I'm, I'm good for now. I mean, unless one of my competitors goes out uh, and it's an incredible opportunity, you know, you, 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 you always got to look at things. But I, I think that I don't ever really want to be caught in an overexposed, especially at my age, you know, <laughs> you know when you're in your 60s already, uh, you look for things a little safer. But what, where I really not ever is focused as much is on the production side of things. So like I said, uh, trying to work to get this book out, then work to get a screenplay out, I might work on a live show of the book at my club um, and see what that can lead to. Uh, of course, the project you and I discussed, and there'll be others like that. I mean, I you know, I have a few uh, ideas of, of different types of shows that I might want to do and, and um, see where it leads. Great. And you know what? When this is over, when, when you're open again, I think we uh, we need to go back to page 32 in your book and restart New Material Wednesdays. What do you think? New Material Wednesdays, 1992, 93, yeah. with Jim Mandrinos. <laughs> a very young Jim Mandrinos, 27, 28 years ago. Yeah, I was but a child. Um, you know, we got we to gotta get back. We got to be on stage. And you know what? Let's just not... Uh, Let's not just make it be performing in your club. Let's go somewhere and perform together when this is over. What do you Absolutely. say? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, take a moment to talk about you. You know, one of the things I've always heard about you and, and people repeat the same mantra over and over about Jim Mandrinos is he's one of the greatest listeners in the world. And that is so tough in our business because in our business, Everybody wants to be heard. You know, listen to me, listen to me, hear me. I got to talk. And Jim is one of the few people around that he will actually sit there and listen and listen. And God knows how many hours of crap he's listened to from people and will still be able to give you some very sage advice. And I know there were times in my years in comedy that I had to reach out to him and... Oh. He, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. probably, that he was very helpful, in, and it's in the book. I don't think I mentioned him by name, but the, the topic is in the book, and he was instrumental in helping me get that all resolved and settled. So It's very sweet of you to say that, although my wife would not agree about me listening. Uh, in fact, nobody I was ever married to would ever agree. I'm Jim Mandrinos, for anybody that doesn't know, is quite the ladies' man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. Let me tell you, walking around in Florida, I'm finding a lot of women that know Jim Mandrinos. 
Oh God, yeah, Very you're in the part of back in the old days. You, you you're in that part of Florida, aren't you? You're, oh, you're yeah. Palm right Beach near County, the near the old comic strip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, let, let's just say 1992 and 1993 were not uh, very kind years for me. <laughs> uh, Al, we uh, there's more to talk about, but I want to break it up and do another interview down the line. Sure. So if you're open, uh, and we're going to get the studio reopened here, and uh, you, when you're back in New York, let's bring you down and let's do one face-to-face. Absolutely. Sounds great, Jim. Thank you right. so much for having me. Uh, we got to plug it one more time. Al Martin, I did it on there. You can order it on Amazon.com and you can get it. It's shipped in two days. That's I ordered, right. I ordered or on if Wednesday. you're into Kindle right away and available yep. on iTunes in audio. If you're too lazy to hold the book or hold an who, iPad. Who did the audio book for you? Uh, actually, a guy named Ian World. You know Ian World? I know the name. I don't know him personally. Ian is one of the top audio visual guys in New York uh, doing uh, sound effects. He does uh, uh, a lot of the work at Broadway in terms of keeping the the sound and the lighting in top shape for shows. And he does voiceover work. And uh, throughout the country, a lot of touring theater groups use him to be their uh, sound and light guy. So he had some time down during COVID, and he, and he did the do. book. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, COVID think, is going to create a lot of great things. <clears throat> I think so. You know, with this podcast being one of them. Uh, That's right. There you go. There you go. Uh, Al, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I will be back in just a moment to wrap things up. So there are so many great perspectives that we got in that interview, from talking about his love of comedy to talking about you know, what it takes to to run a club, talking about what it was like as a comedian starting at that hectic time. There's so much we can learn if we're just willing to listen to each other and to listen to the people who've been here before us. Um, We're going to definitely bring Alan for another interview down the line. But until then, you should be uh, listening to the Comedy Legacy Podcast every Monday. You can catch us on YouTube Live. And then after that, you can catch all the old episodes on YouTube. You can also catch us wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, iTunes. But when you're there, can you download, leave a review, you know, rate us. We'd greatly appreciate it from everybody here at New Media Comedy Studios that's helping us put together this podcast. Uh, I'm Jim Andrinos. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. This has been a new media comedy worldwide production.